Listening Dog Media. I mean, we can talk about this in the podcast if you want, but I knew about three people at school and they were like my buffer to the rest of the school. I didn't want to know anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> you are the nicest guy. People, you know, you, you're known to be a, such a nice guy. That's a slightly upsetting that you didn't like anybody. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. To play music to people and to see music do that and make people feel happy, it's a beautiful thing. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ. I love being in the booth, watching people play and just seeing their technique. I feel like that's one of the most joyous places for me to be. Is it really responsible to be a DJ? How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life, stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. There's not really much point in me getting flown all around the world just to play a song and watch the turntable go around. And for this episode, a DMC DJ of the Year award winner. The whole of the 90s for me, I just listened to nothing but hip hop religiously. Q Magazine named him one of 10 DJs to see before you die. Because I play every genre of music, everything's fair game. Sometimes it's a bit overwhelming. Dr. Dre personally requested he do a guest mix on his inaugural Beats One show for Apple Music. I can tell you what I don't want before me, which is someone more talented, but it happens a lot. <laughs> and he's one of the greatest cut and paste DJs in the world. One in, I don't know, 50, 20 shows. There's just no one there. No. If I've come all the way here to this specific place, I should be doing something specifically for you guys. He is Duncan Beanie, better known as DJ Yoda. Hi, Duncan, Yoda, what do you want to go with? Whatever you feel like calling me. <laughs> it's up to you. <laughs> I don't care. I'm going to go with Yoda because it's a rare opportunity to do so. Yeah, yeah. I don't like it when I check into hotels and I get Mr. Yoda and then they laugh at me. That's the thing that happens. I wondered if uh, that might have been why you'd adopted a, a moniker. <laughs> you know, that fame thing in hotels? Well, it's not the reason why, no. I mean, I, I, I only adopted a moniker because... Everyone around me was doing that. And I kind of regret doing it because my actual name is, well, my initials are DJ and then my surname's Beanie. So DJ Beanie is actually my name. <laughs> and it's a better name as well. So I don't know how, how that went wrong, but we're 25 years down the line now. Before we head it into the big box of questions, uh, where did you learn to scratch? Big questions to start with. <laughs> I taught myself and at that point there was no internet there were no videos to watch i didn't have any friends that were into hip-hop or dj so i really just kind of copied what i had seen on top of the pops or what i thought you were supposed to do and the net result of that was i spent about a year or two just doing completely the wrong thing and ruining records ruining needles ruining my parents i cried but I think that was a really valuable year or two. And I would recommend it to anyone starting anything new is like try and figure it out for yourself entirely first and get it wrong because it's a really unique way to start something. You work out what's crap first. Uh, yeah, but why did you, you start doing it in the first place? Because the music that I was into, I mean, the very first music I was into when I was seven, eight, nine years old was pop music and it was 80s pop at the time. But then what I kind of gravitated towards was this kind of like crossover between hip-hop and pop in the late 80s you would get these kind of hip-hop remixes of pop songs with lots of kind of samples from movies in and little bits of scratching and just quotes from 40s movies and you know just samples basically and you'd hear little bits of scratching in it i'm thinking about things like um 
the Colcock remix of Eric B and Rocky, uh, even groups like Johnny Hayes Jazz and Climby Fisher, you have these kind of hip hop versions of it with scratching it. And that's something about that sound of the scratching and the idea of throwing in little samples really appealed to me. So I was just trying to recreate that. So was the intention at first then to be a DJ or was it to make music? I mean, it definitely wasn't to be a DJ. That was never a plan. It just kind of happened without me thinking about it very much. Really the intention was to make tapes. I was making pause tapes for myself anyway, and I just wanted to have cassettes that had all the best bits of my favorite songs on. And were you sharing those? To begin with, no. Uh, and I've got a whole bunch of those tapes still. They're really funny to listen back to now. They've got little bits of TV programs that I liked in between. Then I started copying those tapes for friends at school. And then they were passed around and copied. And then I would take kind of 10 copies that I'd made at home to record shops in London and start sending them to Bristol and Manchester and it all grew from there. That's very motivated, isn't it? You (laughs) clearly had a a sense of where you wanted to get to. Well, I don't think so because like I said, I never really like planned, oh, I'm going to be a DJ. This is what I'm going to do. I just did the things that made sense in front of me and I was doing it anyway. I would have been making those tapes just for myself. So the fact that anyone else had any interest and like willing to give me money for them was just a bonus. I was like, great. Were you only listening to hip hop then? So after the kind of pop music of my youth, and as I started to get into hip hop in the kind of late eighties, early nineties, that reset, uh, kind of precedent for the whole of the nineties for me, I just listened to nothing but hip hop religiously. And I did not want to know if it had a guitar in it. I did not want to know if it had a dance beat to it. Just anything that wasn't hip hop from 1990 to 2000, I had no interest. When did you start listening to that music more than just for pleasure, getting into the detail and wondering what you might be able to do with it? I was always like that, right from the very start. That's what those first tapes were. They were little bits of Rick Astley, like Kylie Minogue, but then mixed with Ice-T and Big Daddy Day. I would always listen to music in a kind of analytical way, I suppose, in the same way that I've always watched movies. And maybe that's because my parents both worked in music and, you know, I had a Casio keyboard with a sampler and I was just kind of breaking down things in my head, thinking like, well, that's the good bit. I want to loop that bit, or I don't like that bit, or this would sound better if it was really slow or really fast, or just thinking about how to mess around with music and video. What did your parents do? And my dad was a manager. He managed Eurythmics to begin with, and then Eddie Gran, uh, Sunita, and all kinds of people. So I grew up going to music video shoots and gigs and stuff like that when I was a kid. And my mum worked for a music producer. They were just in the music industry. That was their, their world. Uh, so was it by osmosis then that you think that you perhaps ended up doing this for a job? You saw the bright lights. Yeah, I think so. My dad kept his record collection in my bedroom. So I was literally surrounded by records from the start. So in some ways, I guess that was inevitable. And when did you progress from uh, making pause tapes? I got a job in the summer holidays of school and saved money to buy one turntable and then another. And then I was like, had the actual equipment that I needed to learn to DJ properly. And the tapes got more and more professional. I kind of, then I bought a four track cassette recorder and then I was able to layer things up. And then the tapes started getting copied kind of professionally rather than just with the kind of dual cassette thing in my bedroom and the covers started getting made properly. And then next thing I knew, I had a record company say to me, or oh, do you want to make like an official one of these tapes where we license all the tracks? And that turned out to be 
how to cut and paste volume one. And whilst all this was going on, I was kind of getting practice DJing at house parties and really terrible clubs in London. And then when I went to university in the Midlands, that was really my kind of practice at DJing in front of people. I was resident at the weekly acid jazz night, which really dates it. I would just get my practice in supporting big DJs. And that was a really important thing. You said that uh, DJing properly. What, what do you consider to be DJing properly? DJing is such a huge thing. It could mean so many different things. The guy on Classic FM is a DJ. The guy on Hospital Radio is a DJ. David Getter is a DJ. Jazzy Jeff is a DJ. They're all such different things. So I kind of come from a very specific scene. Proper and inverted commas DJing or real DJing as it gets called a lot on social media. It means, I guess, using turntables scratching, quick mixing, using complicated DJ techniques to do interesting stuff. But I don't dismiss any kind of DJ. For me, I've always thought that there's not really much point in me getting flown all around the world to go and DJ somewhere in some far-flung place just to play a song and watch the turntable go around, wait five minutes for the song to finish and then play another song. Because I might as well have sent a playlist via email. To me, the exciting thing about what a kind of real DJ can do is really think on your toes and do some kind of improvisational thing there in the moment that fits the energy of the room that you're in and take it in any direction. Happy accidents will happen. And like that's to me the exciting stuff. Was it at uni then that you started to get this kind of confidence? Yeah, that's where I built all that confidence. It was putting your 10,000 hours at standing in front of the crowd and getting it wrong a lot and trying to figure things out. So at that point, that, that was kind of late nineties, early two thousands. That was when I was kind of coming out of this cave of just full hip hop and suddenly the world opened up to me. I was like, oh my God, there's everything. There's drum and bass, there's reggae, there's country music, there's all this different stuff. And so I was just trying to get my head around, well, what happens if you play drum and bass at the end of the night? You know, what happens if you play an hour of reggae? It's just, yeah, experimentation and the best practice you can have is in front of a crowd. Were you uh, on a pedestal though at uni uh, amongst the other DJs that were doing nights? There weren't really other DJs and that's why I was really lucky <laughs> to be at Warwick University where there were no hip-hop DJs. Because if I had beat where all my friends were, which was Bristol, Brighton, Manchester, there would have been competition. But because I was the only one there in Warwick, it meant that there was no competition and I got all that practice time, so it kind of worked out. Warwick at that time, it was a particularly sought after university bet then. And well, as it is still now, I'm sure, but uh, I, I remember at the time it was a top five uni. What gave you the time to do all the DJing? That was what I cared about. You know, I was studying film and English literature there, but you know what it's like at university to do the minimum to get by. It gives you a lot of time for the first time that you've ever had to kind of really indulge in your other interests. I was making mixes, DJing, it just gave me the time and space to do that. Yeah, as someone that did American studies, I can definitely relate to what you're saying. Yeah, it's an essay at the end of every year, right? And the rest of it just got to kind of pretend you read a book. At first. <laughs> time for the first now of your five picks from the 45 in this record box here, Duncan. Yoda. I said I was going to stick with Yoda, didn't I? All the questions are <laughs> are on 45 sleeves. You say when as I dip into the box. Are you dipping? I mean, I'm very much dipping, yeah. When? <laughs> That's good when. Uh, how much of what you do is instinct and how much is experience? 
That's a really good question. And I think the answer is really half and half. I mean, those are the two things to draw upon. If you're talking about kind of DJing in a live situation in front of a crowd, that's a real 50-50. Like half of it is, well, I've done this enough. I know this is going to work and I know this won't work. And I know this is probably what I should do. I mean, because I play every genre of music, everything's fair game. Sometimes it's a bit overwhelming. I mean, I'm looking at the whole library of music since it's been recorded. I can play anything. So sometimes I can find myself in what is traditionally a hip hop environment, play a country and Western song, and it's working. There's no reason for it to work, but it is. So go with it. Do you do everything live? Yeah, I really do. Like when I'm DJ, 100%, like I, I don't plan. Sometimes I have an intro, which is like one minute. I'll get that out of the way and then it's just, let's see what happens. But it's the same reason I said about like, you know, if I've come all the way here to this specific place, I should be doing something specifically for you guys. How does it make you feel? Um, it's like a puzzle. <laughs> it's like doing a jigsaw puzzle. You're kind of like working stuff out, trying to fit together pieces. And when it clicks, it's incredibly satisfying. Okay, it's a good answer. Back into the box for question two. Say when. When. <laughs> okay who have you got to thank oh wow i mean <laughs> i could go off on a really long list on that like since this is a dj podcast i could keep it to djs because i could get you know i've got my parents to thank for all the reasons that we we said earlier but if i'm thinking about djs there's definitely a school of mixtape djs hip-hop mainly new york types of the nineties that I really tried to emulate what they were doing. So for instance, there's a guy called DJ Briz, who was just massively influential for me, but a lot of people haven't heard of. He did a 15 minute mix on Tim Westwood's show. I guess it was still capital rap show at the time, which kind of became legendary amongst, uh, scratch DJs because he was incredibly talented at all the scratch stuff and he was playing hip hop, a lot of old school hip hop, but then he would randomly throw in. Wicked Game by Chris Isaac or Smooth Operator by Sade. But the way that he flipped it, it made it hip hop. And that to me was hugely inspiring. It's like this idea of like, you can take the hip hop techniques, but apply them to any kind of music. I mean, because really hip hop is every kind of music anyway. So when a hip hop DJ manages to do that with different types of music, that's really what inspires me. And the other guys doing that were people like Spin Bad. He recently passed away, but he did the first 80s pop mix by Hip Hop DJ. And that was like, wow, mix all this pop stuff with the, the hip hop style of playing it. That's that's so cool. Kid Koala was a great DJ, very musical with the way he scratched. He taught me that scratching doesn't need to be just technical and perfect. It's, it's more like playing an instrument. And you can be really expressive with it. Mixmaster Mike, same thing. Huber, best scratch DJ that's ever existed. Every scratch DJ will agree with that. But then other DJs for different things, David Rodigan, just for his personality and what he brought to every live event that only he could bring. Westwood in his own way, same thing, crazy personality. So I could list DJs forever. Have you had a chance ever to sort of stand over their shoulder and watch them at work? Yeah, uh, stuff like that still happens. You know, my favorite DJ at the moment was a Japanese guy, Coco. His thing is that he only plays 45s, so only 700 records. And he uses quite an old school mixer. There's no flashy computers or effects, but he's just so incredibly talented, so precise that it's kind of otherworldly to watch. 
So I just bought out one of the songs from my last album on a, on a 45 and he played it on his Instagram. So I was like, oh my God, it's my favorite DJ, Blake, my record. It's so exciting. <laughs> what, how's he going to flip it? What's he going to do with it? Has it ever felt like work? It feels like work when you're in the middle of like a nine hour journey that's gone wrong and you're stuck at an airport. Those bits can feel like work or the politics behind the scenes can feel like work. Why didn't this person book me for this event? You know, that kind of thing. That can feel like work. Do you still feel like that? Yeah, everyone feels like that. doesn't matter what position you're in. Um, that's human nature. It's nothing to do with uh, being a DJ or being any level of DJ. I guess there was never going to be anything else that you'd do. Yeah, well, it's like I said, like the stuff that I do like DJing, I would be doing if no one cared. The very fact that anyone cares is a bonus. When I'm actually DJing, you know, if I'm standing on a stage and I've got turntables and a lot of the time a screen these days as well when I'm doing video stuff, that never feels like work because that's what I would do if I was left to own devices. Do you think that uh, growing up in a household where Annie Lennox was obviously a friend of the family or Sunita, do you think that the adulation that you saw them get rubbed off on you? Do you think that there is something about being there in front of people that you really get into, that you get a real buzz from? A hundred percent no. I mean, that is the, the side of it that I don't care about. I do it despite the fact that there's people there. So I don't have any desire for the adulation. A question that's got some interesting answers on the podcast through different episodes is, and the answers, I'm never sure how honest they've been, but it's about the performance element of what you do. And so leading on from whether it's about the adulation or not, you know, there's not much downtime for a scratch DJ while the music's playing. Are you comfortable to be there in front of thousands of people? I am. Yeah. Part of the reason that I DJ the way that I DJ is so that I don't just have to stand there like a goon. So the part of my style of DJ is just like, I keep myself busy. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. I don't know any like 12, 13 year old kids that are learning to DJ or just turntables, but I hope that there are some out there when the music cuts off and there's silence and you have to reboot a laptop. That's the longest minute you will ever endure. Time for another one from the box now. And you say when. When? <laughs> uh, that's turned into a deep dive. And the question that's come out here, when have you felt euphoric? It's a funny question to ask me because I don't deal with euphoria. You know, like sometimes I, you know, maybe a taxi driver will say, what kind of music do you play? When I tell them I'm a DJ, I say, I pretty much play everything except, I guess, techno and trance. It doesn't really connect with me very much. And that was the music that I most associate with the feeling of euphoria. And I think some of that might be drugs related because I've never been, I've never even like tried ecstasy. And I think that maybe that kind of drugs can lead you into that kind of sound of music. That's a guess. I don't know. So euphoria isn't something that I can relate to very much. What about your best ever billing then that's given you a real buzz? Oh, definitely. When the lineup was DJ Yoda, Pat Sharp. <laughs> in uh, <laughs> in um, <laughs> somewhere like appropriately uh, taunted. Those funny ones always get me. Like if I'm on the same billing as like Timmy Mallet or Mr. Motivator. <laughs> <laughs> that can't possibly happen often enough, can it? Yeah, exactly. That's great stuff for me. No, there's, there's been so many that like it's, you know, the part of the fun of festivals every year is the fact that 
you look at the lineup, you're like, oh, cool. These are the other people that are going to be in the same stage. What do you think the difference is between playing a venue where people have come just to see you and playing at a festival? Where people have come just to see you, they're a bit more on your side from the start. So I think as a DJ, you'd be a bit freer to just freak you out here and take a few left turns and people be like, oh, wow, maybe they met or how did that happen? But if it's a part of a bigger lineup on the stage where a lot of the crowd might not know who I am, I probably get a little bit more of a duty to kind of show them what I do. You know, sometimes I like to start a set by playing a lot of old school hip hop because it kind of shows people this the like starting point here and then I take it off in any direction. But at least you know like that's my kind of natural resting place. Uh, back to the box. When <laughs> How has technology changed the way you DJ? It constantly changes it every year. It's a really fast-moving seat, and I'm pretty up-to-date on it. I change the mixer that I use pretty much every year and have done for 20-odd years. I'm just interested in different ways of taking the art form. So I don't care about it for the sake of caring about it, but as soon as there's something that allows me to do something new, it gets my mind going, like, oh, what can I do? That, that's, that looks cool. But the kind of caveat with that is I just have to operate the whole thing with two turntables. That, to me, it's like the kind of connection to the roots of DJ that got me into it all. And anytime that I've tried to use CDJs or controllers or just computers, it just doesn't feel quite right. I can do it, but it doesn't feel right. Do you think that there'll be a time in the future when there'll be no turntables, but DJs are still considered authentic? That's a great question. I think not in our lifetime. It depends how much the stuff that people like that guy Coco I was just describing and people like Jazzy Jeff and Catch Money, it depends how their legacies are received because I don't know any like 12, 13 year old kids that are learning to DJ or just turntables and records at the moment, but I hope that there are some out there. So I think time will tell, I kind of hope so. And I suspect so, but I suspect it will be kind of like a small scene in a small world in the same way that there are people still learning the banjo, you know, people, someone out there who cares about playing just the kind of recorder. I assume you work with companies on different gear to move it forward. Yeah, I have done. Yeah, quite a lot. And what would you love to see invented in your lifetime? What would make you a better scratch DJ that no human can actually achieve? I have been working with DJ tech companies for 20 odd years. And up until about 10 years ago, I was suggesting stuff. And then from that point on, I was like, well, that's everything I can think of. And yet every year they surprise me. So we're at a point now where I'm like, I don't have anything left that I need, but it seems that people have still got ideas. What I was really um, waiting on and trying to make happen was all the video stuff. And now we're even light years ahead with that. I'm using the turntables to control video uh, and mix the video and scratch the video. I use little bits for films and music videos and adverts or anything that I, I want to throw in as well as the music. And it's so easy to do that. And there's a bit more kind of like streamlining to do to make it better, but it's very trivial stuff in the grand scheme of things. Speaking of adverts, this is a real crowbarred link, but how did the serial thing get going? <laughs> One of my other loves, apart from movies and music, is breakfast cereal. <laughs> uh, but really? Really, yeah. I mean, my studio is, I collect rare breakfast cereal boxes. Yeah, I know. 
But I just, when did it become a thing? I think when I was growing up, I had a lot of family in America. So we were traveling to America quite a lot. And just when you're nine years old and then you're having colorful fruit loops in the States, it's quite exciting compared to the like bomb flakes you get back home. And I just always liked the aesthetic of it. I like the boxes, like the animals that you get. No, it, because it fits so much with your music somehow. I don't know if that's by the association that you've created, but you know, that, like you say, those colours, the typefaces. Yeah, the typefaces, the colour of it, it represents fun. And like, honestly, like for me, so much of the joy of this planet lies in sugar. <laughs> like, <laughs> sugar is just the best. And so that's why cereal is so awesome. Well, you say that, uh, kids, keep off the sugar. <laughs> Seriously, though. Well, there's this worst thing. There are. You've never done ecstasy, but you, God, you love a Fruit Loop. Yeah, exactly. Okay, uh, a last question from the box now. Your fifth and final question. You say when. When. And they are the best whens ever, by the way. Uh, this is, when has it all gone wrong? Oh, so many times. Like, it's that's part of it. You know, it has to all go wrong because... If it had not gone wrong, I would have stopped ages ago. It's the going wrong that keeps you going. One in, I don't know, 50, 20 shows, there's just no one there. No. Yeah, it happens all the time. And it's nothing to feel bad about. It's There's so many factors in that. It could be anything. There could be a football match. There could be a bad bit of promoting going on. It could be that everyone hates you. Who knows what it is, but every now and then, you play to an empty room. But what are you saying? Is empty to Yoda like 500, not 1,000? I've done everything. I've played to nobody. I've played to rooms where even the bar staff aren't there. For any new DJ, that's so modestly, I think, reassuring of you to, to actually be okay about saying that. It's just the truth. You know, it's, and anyone would say that. Any DJ that tells you that haven't played to an empty room is lying. It happens, and it's not always your fault. Sometimes it is your fault. I've been playing to a crowd of 10,000, and then... Three songs into the next DJ set, it's empty. <laughs> so, you know, we've all done that as well. Yeah, that's hard. There are awesome moments and there are moments like that. Do you have a favourite warm-up DJ? Ooh, I used to. I think it's really, it's really quite condescending to call someone a warm-up DJ now. I feel quite hesitant about doing that. It's an important role, though. It is an important role. And you could, you know, I've done that job for other people and I still do. So I don't think I would want to label anyone as that. But a lot of the time, I know the people that the DJ before me, and I know the ones that I really like to play before me and the ones that I don't. I can tell you what I don't want before me, which is someone more talented. And it happens a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that modesty, it's, it's very <laughs> endearing. And I know it's for real. It's, it's, it's just true. I, I'm, I'm just honest about it. You know, there are DJs who are not as successful as me who are way more technically talented. It doesn't mean that they're better overall. You know, sometimes those technically talented DJs don't know the right songs to play to the right crowd. Sometimes they do as well. But I'm always honest about it. With the original question being, when has it all gone wrong? Because you rely so heavily on technology. Can you remember a time when it's all started to crumble? Yeah, because I'm always kind of at the forefront of the technology stuff. There was a point about, I went through about a year of it, about five years ago where I could not figure out what was going on, but my computer was crashing at most gigs. And when the computer crashes, the sound goes and the video goes. And it's one thing, the video going off the screen, but when the music cuts off and there's silence and you have to reboot a laptop, that's the longest minute 
you will ever endure. <laughs> and it's happened a lot and it's happened to big crowds, but there's nothing you can do. You just go, Stole, I want help. They were five brilliant responses to questions from the box. I've got, if you're okay with this, just some quick fires here to tidy up a few loose ends. Yeah, sure. Uh, what's your tech of choice? Uh, so like I said, that changes the whole time. But at the moment, I really love these phase DJ things. I don't know if you've seen them or heard about them, but they're like little kind of Bluetooth receivers. Yes. That you stick on top of a turntable and it will just read, Sorrento will read the thing going around so you can scratch. It basically means you could DJ without needles or cartridges or even the turntable plugged into the mixer. Not with the turntable turns around. What about headphones? Really don't care. If I can hear the music, I don't care what they are. And the same with uh, speakers, monitors in the studio, sound systems. That stuff has never really interested me. So in many respects, you turn up like at any DJ at a gig with a record bag. Yeah. These days I bring Sorento control vinyl, those phase DJ things, headphones, a laptop. When I started, it was creative records, so at least it's not that. Another one. What's the biggest gig of your life? Well... What do you mean by big? Does big mean a number of people? And then the biggest crowd I played to, but it's, those ones are terrible, those gigs. They're never the best ones. Where was that? It was in Italy. Played to like 35,000 people. But those kind of things, my experience of it is that a crowd that big has got no interest in the DJ. They're not watching or caring. On that basis then, which has been your best ever gig? Oh, so difficult. I mean, it's difficult because it requires a memory. And it's difficult because I'm so lucky that I seem to have something like that happen every six months or so. I've had so many good moments. I've randomly named some. I think when I launched my last album, the London show of it was at Ronnie Scott's. And we did like a proper jazz show to a seated crowd, sold out. And it just felt really special. I remember like headlining at the Roundhouse in Camden. That's kind of local to where I grew up. It means a lot to me, that area. That was a really special one. I uh, played for George Lucas and the cast of Star Wars when they released one of the Star Wars movies. And that was in Monte Carlo during the Grand Prix. Wow. I've done loads of things like that with kind of interesting, famous people that be special. Did you get to meet any of the Star Wars cast? Yeah, I did. I met George Lucas, who didn't have much interest in me. <laughs> Despite the name. Which is a good thing, I think, actually. And yeah, there's been loads of things like that that have been so cool. Do you have one single song with a, a special memory attached to it? Again, really hard one. I could probably come up with a very random one, which is my favourite American city is Boston and always has been. I love movies that are set in Boston. I like music out of Boston. It's a really big Irish town as well. And I remember that I played in Boston at this club that I love there on St. Patrick's Day. It's like a bigger deal in Boston than it is in, in Ireland. Yeah, I went to school in Boston for a while and uh, that's some, yeah, massive occasion. And I remember playing Shipping Up to Boston by the Dropkick Murphys on St. Patrick's Day in Boston. It's so cool when you play like the right song in the right place at the right time. That's always good. Euphoric even. No, I won't go that far. <laughs> Have you got a favourite five in a row? I don't understand your question. <laughs> like five in a row to play when I'm DJing or five in a row to listen to at home or five in a row that makes sense together? Qualify your question. Well, I, I quite like to hear your answer to all three, but I, I'm going to say when you're DJing. Okay, well then like 
talking about ways to make songs work with the next song. Because my interest lies in sampling, I will play like a hip hop record and then the song that it samples or the other way around. So that to me is a nice kind of way to like tie songs together when I DJ. So going with that theory, something like Jurassic by Concrete Schoolyard, uh, and then the Ike Turner song that it samples, which is getting nasty. And a similar one would be Good Times by Styles P. And then the song samples is by Frida Payne, it's called I Get High. But that leaves me with one, one random song that's been sampled a lot by a lot of people. So why not? Uh, Parliament. Brilliant. And I've got one last question for you, DJ Yoda. It's the end of the world and you've got to play the last three records on earth. What would those three records be? Well, again, just, I don't think you could have found a harder question to ask. I mean, you might have said, what's the meaning of life to a DJ asking questions like that? It's impossible. <laughs> but the only way I can do these things is to like pick a feet. So I would go for like, try to cheer people up and calm people down music. So maybe don't worry, be happy by Bobby McFerry. <laughs> I'm assuming there's some kind of apocalypse about to happen. Yeah. Good choice. And maybe Bob Marley as well, three little birds. So don't worry, be happy. Uh, and then how about the, um, the one flew over the cuckoo's nest medication time, calming classical music, which is mad to Charmaine. Oh, superb. <laughs> You're going into the apocalypse as you know, like, easy listening, classical. That's the best suggestion that anyone's come up with in answer to that question. So thank you for that. Thanks, dude. Thank you so much, Duncan. DJ Yoda. And that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs>